question for you. Is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? <laughs> now, if you're new here this morning, you're like, uh-oh, I've walked into one of those kinds of churches, either thinking too like, uh, legalistic or too liberal. Okay, what if, what if that, that tattoo is like Christian in nature? Like, for example, that tattoo on the handsome guy on the big screen says, the Lord is sal- my salvation. Is it okay for a pastor to get a tattoo? What if it was before they became a Christian? What if that, they got several tattoos after they became a Christian? Is it okay to watch R-rated movies? Now some of you are like, oh, no, no, this is the wrong church. Is it okay to have a beer? Is it okay to use medical marijuana if you have significant life pains? Is it okay for you to be very aligned with a specific political party? Some of you think you know what my politics are, but you don't. It turns out there are many issues in our culture today that lack specific clarity or instruction in the Bible. And so there, we find that Christians are often debating with one another if we're to practice freedom in Christ or restraint in Christ in all kinds of life issues today. And I'm going to suggest to you, based on the passage that we're reading this morning, that our decisions aren't defined by a list of legalisms or a list of liberties, that Jesus gives us a very different way of looking at life of making choices through the lens of the gospel. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're in this long series this year called Clear, where we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this church in that city to remind them, instead of being blinded by worldly values, to see clearly through our identity in Christ. That is someone who has been loved, is forgiven, is transformed through the cross, that God guides us and grows us in holiness and in unity together to be distinct from the world around us. And then Paul writes to show us how does that practically apply to issues like division or sin or conflict or sex or relationships we've been talking about these last several weeks. And today what we're seeing is that Paul's continuing this kind of Q&A with the Corinthian Christians about whether or not social practices are permissible for Christians. And so even though they're going to be talking about a weird issue to us, like meat that's sacrificed to idols, offered to idols, We're really wrestling with a broader issue that all of us, even today, continue to face. How do you discern our freedom or our responsibility in controversial, maybe more gray areas of life that the Bible doesn't speak to? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so what we see happening here from the beginning of the passage is in Corinthian society, they would slaughter animals periodically for meals at these pagan temple festivals or even at private celebrations. And there were both spiritual and social implications for these kind of gatherings. So think of it this way. It's kind of like, like a church Thanksgiving banquet, right? There's both the social implications of gathering together. People just want to hang out and have a Thanksgiving dinner and also spiritual implications as we give thanks to God. And so 
When they, sacrifice, when they would sacrifice this meat, it would be offered up in three ways. Some of it is offered as burnt offering to various deities of their culture, Greek and Roman deities, other various religions throughout the Roman Empire. Afterwards, after giving thanks to various gods, some of it would be eaten in a banquet. And then thirdly, the leftover meat would be sold to the marketplace, which we'll talk about in chapter 10. But you have to keep in mind that for people back then, meat was actually rare for the average person to eat on a regular basis, unlike us today. And so many people would come to these either uh, temple festivals or to these private banquet celebrations because meat was available and ready. It's kind of like going to the ancient equivalent of a restaurant. And so Corinthian families grew up attending these kind of meals all their life. And so I want you to think about being a Corinthian person. Many of them were not Jewish. They grew up with this as the norm. And after they become Christians, there's this intense debate about whether or not it's okay to eat this meat that's been offered up to an idol. Now, the more religiously conservative in in their church would argue, no, it's evil. Don't do it. It's participating in idolatry. And then you have the more religiously liberal who are spouting this very common slogan amongst the Corinthians that we see in verse 1. So this is not Paul speaking. He's quoting a a common saying amongst the Corinthians that all of us possess this theological knowledge about our freedom in Christ. So when they look at this issue, some of them are saying, well, it's fine. You know who's freaking out? Just people who are immature or ignorant about the Bible. They need to chill and just enjoy some barbecue together with us. And so we see there's these two factions within the church arguing over who is more genuinely spiritually mature, those with knowledge about their liberties or those who restrain themselves by their legalism. And we don't wrestle with this, this same kind of cultural issue, uh, obviously, as 21st century Americans, unless you're troubled going to an Asian restaurant, by, eating at a restaurant with a waving lucky cat, maybe think of that as kind of slightly idolatrous. But we don't really wrestle with that kind of issue, right? But... This is not really just about eating meat. Look at Paul's response in verse 1. Knowledge, the seeming theological knowledge that we have, puffs us up while love builds people up. In other words, there's this tendency in the human heart to wield a little theological knowledge as a weapon to get what we want, what we prefer. And so it puffs us up with pride about our knowledge and our freedom that we have, regardless of the condescension or the consequences to other people instead of being guided by genuine love that's caring and considerate of others to build up their faith. And so in verse 2, he, he says to people who think they know what, what they don't know, you may imagine that you know what's right and what's true in your, from your own point of view, yet you are unaware of what you do not know, what you need to know. You're blind to your own limitations and misinterpretations and misapplications of God's Word towards other people. So, you may know theologically some truth about the Christian life, but you do not know practically how to apply it with the love of Christ. And so, he says in verse 3, as a reminder, what's most important is not what you think you know, but if you genuinely love God and how He knows you. He knows your flaws, your faults, your failures. He knows that weird experimental hairstyle you had during your teenage years. He knows your secrets and your sins and your selfishness. He knows you completely. And yet by faith in Jesus, he treats us with kindness, with acceptance, with patience, with forgiveness. 
And so as you and I, he's reminding us of this because as we experience this tremendous grace and acceptance and kindness from God, instead of being arrogant and condescending and uncaring about other people, we'll love them in the same way that he loves us and in the same way that he loves those people. So, how do Christians make wise and godly decisions about these gray areas of life? The big idea of this passage this morning is that maturity makes decisions of spiritual influence by applying the knowledge of God through the love of God for others. And I don't mean that in some, like, you know, emotional, soft, squishy way about just love everyone, but what we're seeing here is it's not so much about how much legalism is required or how much liberty is permitted, but how much love is practiced in applying the truth from God in our decisions, in our lives, for the good of others within the body of Christ. And so when we face questionable issues as a follower of Jesus, I want to start off by asking you, what is the primary thing that guides your decision-making? Let's look at it as a spectrum, on a spectrum of one to ten, one being I value truth. I want biblical truth, theological truth. I value the truth. And 10 being, I value people and its effect on others. On that spectrum of truth and people, valuing truth or valuing people, where do you find yourself in your decision-making when it comes to controversial issues? And what Paul would say, and to be honest with you, we all lean one way or the other, being more heavy on truth, like it's really important to me to follow the truth. And some of us, no, it's really more important to me to see how it affects people. And what Paul's point here is, it's not either or. These things work together, that in the family of Christ, our love for others is the goal when we apply our spiritual knowledge. That sounds a little bit general and vague. Are you saying that biblical truth doesn't matter? that we should just love and accept other people and overlook biblical uh, ignorance or biblical error? Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So in verse 4, Paul uh, outlines two more slogans that, that are common amongst the Corinthians. It should be in quotes in your, in your Bible, but, he's, but these are two slogans that the Corinthians are using to justify their choices and their freedom. Number one, that idols don't really exist. They're just stone and wooden statues. They're nothing. And secondly, there are other slogans. We know that there's only one true God. And what those who are more legalistic expect Paul to do is to rip into this that, oh, you guys are just rationalizing. You're selling out to the culture and conforming to the culture around you. So get them, Paul. Teach them that meat sacrifice to idols is still idolatry and that reading Harry Potter is condoning witchcraft or you shouldn't get a tattoo, even though what we as Americans consider a tattoo weren't invented until the 1700s because in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, it says that God prohibits the carving of symbols or scars or words into your flesh because it was associated with an Egyptian fertility goddess or Canaanite rituals of honoring the dead and their gods, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. It's idolatry. 
And surprisingly, what does Paul do? He sides with the slogans, not with the legalists. In verses 5 and 6, yes, it's true. There are countless religions claiming thousands of so-called gods worshipped throughout the Roman Empire, including the cult worship of Caesar as Lord. I don't know if you understand what a big deal it was for people to proclaim Jesus as Lord, because in the Roman Empire, you were supposed to proclaim Caesar as Lord. But he sides with those two slogans saying, you're right, the truth is there's only one God the Father and one Lord Jesus who have divine authority over creation and all of redemption, over all the heavens and the earth and all that exists within it. And so his point is that eating meat, it's a non-issue because none of these pagan idols are truly God or Lord. And in fact, he'll say later in verse 8 that eating certain foods or not eating certain foods That's not what makes you closer to God. Only Jesus does. Because as Jesus, as the God who became a man, who lived sinlessly, who died sacrificially for our sins, who rose victoriously, all these things, because we cannot do these things, he did that on our behalf to give us life, to give us a home, to give us freedom, to give us fulfillment forever. And so Paul is emphasizing this truth about idols and about meat sacrifice to idols and about God because we grow in our freedom in Christ as we grow in our knowledge of Christ. That's exactly why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, if you abide in my word, in the scriptures, in what Jesus teaches, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the context is he's saying we'll set you free from sin and slavery and man-made religious rules and traditions that are not from God are not from the Bible that people like you and I sometimes use to, feed a little, to feel a little bit more holy, a little bit more judgmental because of our own ability and morality instead of receiving the unearned grace of God in the person and work of Jesus. You see, a little theological knowledge can puff us up. 20 years ago, I was the, uh, running the youth ministry in this church, and uh, we had at, in our youth group, which uh, for those of you who are visiting, it's called Footprints, uh, we hosted one of our first ever harvest festivals. So before it was a children's ministry outreach, it was actually a youth ministry outreach at our church to students. And the, the goal was to have students in our youth group to be able to reach out to their uh, unchurched friends at school who might otherwise never step foot on a church campus. Now, there was a little bit of controversy back then. We do it regularly now through our children's ministry, but there was some controversy back then. Uh, There was a mother who who took me aside, a a youth parent mother who took me aside and said they were very uncomfortable with us honoring a holiday, Halloween, about evil spirits and witchcraft, which, of course, hints of idolatry, right? And so we spent some time sharing with her what we are doing as as a Uh, outreach event, that we're not celebrating like, you know, ghosts and spirits and evil things. Like we would tell, we told the kids that um, you couldn't come in a costume with any kind of scary or horror-oriented theme. And that what we're doing is just providing a night of fun and games and prizes, along with uh, me giving a short gospel message. But it was less important about sharing with her what we were doing, because that didn't necessarily change her mind until we started talking about 
why we are doing this, why the, the most important thing was ex- explaining why. And so we talked about, actually, the next chapter, I was talking with this mom about 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says that I, Paul, have become all things to all men, that by all possible means some might be saved that there's this picture that Paul paints in the Bible of, I will use different kinds of methodology. I'll meet people where they're at so that they can meet Jesus. So the purpose of our Harvest Festival wasn't to celebrate evil, it's to honor Christ, it's to redeem Halloween, to meet unchurched people where they're at. And as she talked with me through this, you could see that the truth of Christ, the truth of His Word was working and opening up her heart. And she became actually one of the moms, one of the parents that provided the most support and provided a lot of snacks uh, for youth that evening. And as a result, our small youth group was able to welcome uh, about 100 students to come to that Harvest Festival that night. I know that's, that this last Harvest Festival, we had 800 students from the local elementary school, but 100 students was a big deal back then. And so, for those of you who are part of youth group, you know that our youth group has traditionally been a little bit smaller, and footprints during that season grew to about 80 regularly attending students packing that upstairs youth loft like sardines. Like, it was so hard to, like, uh, Alan and Ellen remember, uh, they were serving alongside me in youth ministry. There were times when uh, the, the room upstairs was so packed, you, had to, you couldn't step somewhere without stepping on somebody's hands or feet. And in fact, I would point out that some of you who are grown-ups now, are here today because you grew up in that youth group because a Jesus-loving mom was humble enough to grow in her understanding and application of the gospel and its freedom for herself and for other people, knowing that the methods of the gospel may change, but its truth does not. So, I want to ask you, I want you to be honest with yourself this morning, how are you imposing your own man-made morality and rules on yourself and on other people, in addition to the Bible. You see, many of us try to control people, criticize others, because they don't talk the right way, they don't dress the right way, they don't listen to the right music, they don't have the right politics, because you and I do not know the difference between what is biblical and what is simply our preferences. Some issues in life are sinful, some are disputable, and some are simply preferential. And the only way that we're going to know the difference is by growing in knowing Jesus and His Word, His will, His ways. And that as we do, we're going to discover that we're able to enjoy so much more of His kingdom blessings and engage in so much more of His kingdom ministries with tremendous freedom in Christ. Okay. So does that mean that uh, once you become a Christian, you're just free to do whatever you want as long as it's not a sin listed in the Bible? Let's wrap up this passage. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, 
And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I, Paul, will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Excuse me. Verse 7. You have a lot of freedom in Christ. Paul just talked about how he agrees theologically with all that position. However, not every believer in the Corinthian church is clear in their conscience on this knowledge about God and their freedom in Christ. And so if you don't know what he's talking about, conscience, your conscience is like a moral compass. Every person on earth has inside of them a set of values and standards that they live by. Now, for those who follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in your heart, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And as he does so, he speaks through your conscience to convict us about sin, to convict us about the righteousness of Christ, to guide us into the truth about God and his word, John chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. And what Paul says here is that for some who are Christians, believers in Christ, their conscience being weak is defiled. Not that they're weak, not that the Holy Spirit, God, is weak, but their conscience is weak. Their conscience is vulnerable to that particular issue or area of life. And so, think about what I said at the beginning. The the Corinthian people who didn't grow up in church, they didn't grow up reading God's Word or worshiping God, they grew up in a culture of pagan celebration. This was the norm, going to these parties all the time. And for some of them, eating Food sacrifices to, uh, to idols causes their conscience excuse me, to feel like they're guilty, they're dirty, and they're sinful. Now, here's the key, because for them, they are. You see, to you, it's no big deal. It, it's, it's not a God, it's just meat. But for them, these, some of these Corinthian believers, in their heart, they're seeing it as, okay, I'm sitting down to this nice uh, prime rib dinner, but I'm willingly participating in honoring and worshiping an idol. And so for them, they're defiled because sin isn't just about our actions. It's also about our intentions, the intentions of our heart. And so for some Corinthian believers, they couldn't sit down and eat this meat without feeling like I'm intentionally bowing before an idol. It reminds me of a, there's a young brother in Christ in this church, um, Vietnamese background, and he was expected, his grandmother passed away, he went to the, the funeral of his uh, uh, non-Christian grandmother, and he's expected to do that thing, you know, as Asian funerals, we have to bow three times and, and burn some incense, and in, in, in my insensitivity, in my knowledge as a Christian of the Bible, and in my liberty as a Christian, I was telling him, you know, it's not really that big of a, just think of it as you go, just think of it as bowing in respect to your grandmother, paying your respects. But this young man didn't grow up in the States. He grew up in a non-Christian home where this type of funeral uh, practices was associated with devotion to Buddha or to ancestral worship, where the action was like praying to your grandmother for help and favor in the future, the way that you would ask God for help and favor. And so for him, there's a lot of sensitivity to it. For him to do that would have been sin in his heart. You understand? And so in verse 8, Paul points out, We at times flaunt our freedom to enjoy this sacrificed food, but that doesn't make you closer to God. You're not spiritually worse off if you refrain from eating it, nor are you spiritually better off if you enjoy eating it. The issue of food is spiritually neutral. 
But what's not neutral is our influence on other people. Verse 9, don't put your own rights on a pedestal, choosing your freedom as an idol that you worship over a brother or sister in Christ. That if your right is a stumbling block into their sin because their conscience is vulnerable to that issue. Now, for us who are 21st century Western individualistic Americans, it's easy to think like, well, isn't that just their own problem? They just need to grow up and grow up in their knowledge of Jesus, right? Paul says in verse 10, if your brother in Christ sees you, Mr. Big Pants, theological liberty and knowledge, eating takeout at the local pagan temple, that by your example, they may feel like, well, I guess we're doing that now, and so I ought to exercise my freedom and partake of this kind of temple idolatrous meat too, even though their weakened conscience still sees it as paying homage and honor to an idol. And so, causing them to sin in their heart. And so in verse 11 and 12, Paul reminds us that this is how knowledge puffs us up. By your knowledge, by your freedom, you are destroying that person whose conscience is vulnerable towards that particular sin. And the Bible is very clear. By sinning against them, you're sinning against Jesus who died for them. That is a heavy conviction. So in verse 13, Paul's conclusion in his own practice, therefore, if meat sacrificed to idol makes one of my brothers in Christ stumble, it's not an issue for me. I just won't eat it out of love for a brother or sister in Christ because I don't want to cause them to stumble. So here's the point. No matter what our freedom is in Christ, there are times we practice restraint of our rights out of love, the love of Christ for others whose conscience is vulnerable. There's some things, you see, that my conscience might convict me of that may not be the same as your conscience. There's some things that are going to be sin for you that are not necessarily sin for me. And we're not talking about the, the ones that are clearly spelled out in the Bible. But we can't allow your conscience to dictate another Christian's conscience about what they should or should not do, whether through our legalism or our liberty. Do you understand what I mean? There are times, for those of us who are, tend to be more legalistic, follow the rules, that we want to impose our legalism on that person and tell them, this is how every Christian should behave. And then some of us are, are more on the liberty camp. You have all this freedom in Christ. You shouldn't let that restrain you. You should do this, that, and the other. And in so doing, whether legalistically or in liberty, you're causing that person to sin. You're harming them. So here's a very concrete example. Is it okay to have a beer because of our freedom in Christ? I'm asking the wrong church because I know so many of you go out for beers together. Sure. We see throughout the Bible faithful men and women, um, as well as even Jesus himself, drank alcohol, drank wine, even though it was different than modern-day uh, alcohol. And, but the issue is, you know, you're free to partake in wine and stuff like that as long as it doesn't lead into sin, right? As long as God, we're not violating God's commandments. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 tells us, do not get drunk on wine. Do not lose control. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit and self-controlled, basically is what it's saying. Or Romans chapter 13, verse 1, like if you're disobeying the law because you are under the legal age, that's sin. <coughs> So go ahead, have a beer with your friend at the bar. Now, if your Christian friend 
as a recovering alcoholic, is it okay to invite them for a beer? And is it okay, okay, you're, you're at the restaurant and you're not invited to the bar, but you order a beer. Is that okay? It's not spelled out in Scripture. There is no commandment that says, no, you, thou shalt not do this or thou shalt do this. But if that person's conscience is vulnerable because in their past, the Holy Spirit has convicted them that their drinking was destroying their family, their home, and their life, are they sinning or not sinning if they have a beer? Because in your freedom, you say, like, it's fine. Bible, people in the Bible did it all the time. If you think that is fine, then you do not understand the enslavement of addiction, the devastation of sin, or how to love another person in the family of Christ. And I speak this to you very genuinely as a recovering addict myself. And so I want you to think about what freedom, what rights do you know that I have in Christ but that perhaps Jesus is calling you to curtail for the sake of another's conscience who's vulnerable to stumbling and sin in that area. Do you think about that? You see, we need clarity about our spiritual influence on others. And what we find here is not a list of personal freedoms or a list of personal restrictions as a Christian, because it turns out that you can be very judgmental and trample other people underfoot with either of those, with, with your freedoms or with your restrictions. That making decisions isn't about how much legalism is required or how much liberty is permitted, but how much love is practiced in applying the knowledge from God for the good of other people. So here at this church, we don't make lists of do's and don'ts, because the top of the list is always stuff like, you know, drinking and, and listening to explicit music and, and dressing modestly and politics. You know what doesn't tend to make that list? Things like gluttony, materialism, selfishness, idolizing exercise, idolizing appearance, idolizing our vacations, worshiping our career or our kids, people or pleasures more than Jesus, being sinfully angry and slanderous, taking advantage of people and situations for our personal gain. You see, people love to assert our knowledge for the preferences of our legalism or our liberties, and we tend to get puffed up with pride about it. So instead of a list for condemnation, I want to encourage you to use some questions for discernment. Number one, what does Scripture say? You see, there's areas of life that the Bible speaks very clearly on. Don't murder, don't steal, don't have sex outside of the God-given covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Don't worship false gods. That's wrong for everybody. And so I want to encourage you to turn to the full counsel of God. Don't just pick and choose those things that align with your priorities, politics, or preferences. Because as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus and His Word, we'll grow in freedom in Jesus and in His Word. Secondly, like what we're dealing with this morning, there's a lot of gray areas where there isn't, there's less instruction and clarity. And so the question is, second question, how is the Holy Spirit speaking through your conscience? And that requires us to get a little bit more honest with ourselves. So some thoughts for you. What are, what are my personal temptations, my personal weaknesses, my underlying motives for doing something? 
what might be okay for someone else, but I, my motive is I want to gain attention or applause, or I want to escape pain or conflict, or I want to find fulfillment and pleasure apart from Jesus. And ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, whether or not your conscience might be vulnerable to a sin where others might be free. Now, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, if the Holy Spirit uh, in your conscience clears it, that doesn't mean that you still should do it. Here's the third question. How does it affect other people in the body of Christ? Not because we're concerned about our image or our performance in front of other people, but because we're concerned about a brother or sister in Christ. What do people around me need from me out of the love of Christ, out of the concern of Christ? You see, knowledge isn't the problem. Knowledge is good when the purpose is we want to know God more. The problem is that we tend to want to know more than other people so that we can weaponize the truth and try to be condescending, controlling, and critical in either our legalism or in our liberties. So instead of letting spiritual knowledge puff you up and tear others down, may the Spirit of Christ and the grace of Christ guide you to apply your knowledge to build others up. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I don't know how this passage is speaking to people this morning. It's one of those passages that sometimes people uh, do exactly the opposite of this passage. They, we use it to, to bludgeon others about our freedom in Christ or our, or our need to, to be more restrained in Christ. And, and I don't think that's really the point. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of our consciences this morning, including mine? Would you convict us and show us areas of morality or life or decisions that we need to make where we're just rationalizing, if we're honest. We're trying to bend Christianity, bend Jesus, bend the Bible to our preferences instead of letting you guide the direction of our decisions. Would you convict us this morning about ways that we're trying to apply with limited spiritual knowledge that we have, ignorant about our blind spots, and how we're using it to impose on others things that are not biblical, whether in legalism or liberty. Would you help us instead to remember how much we are known by Jesus, loved by Jesus, forgiven and accepted by Jesus, and as He has dealt with our flaws and failures, that we might overflow with Your grace unto other people. That there are times that you call us to stand up for truth, to help others get free. But help us to also empathize and understand where people are at to accept them. And instead of asserting my rights, legalistically or liberty, to love someone else enough to build them up. In the family of Christ, Lord, help us the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus died, and the way that Jesus rose, that our love for others is the goal when we apply spiritual knowledge from your word. Would you convict us if there are areas that we need to surrender this morning? In the name of Jesus.